1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 shows the kind of love-fostering ministry that pleases God. also includes my ministry life verse, verse 8, so I am happy to be in this passage with you today. We've all encountered cowardice rather than courage, impurity rather than pure motives, and selfishness rather than selfless service. We've all been tempted to be that way. Paul and his friends had encountered all that and more. They experienced conflict and they were forced to defend their ministry. They gave a dynamic defense that described a heartfelt, heartwarming, even heart-wrenching ministry that stretched them beyond limits. 1 Thessalonians is about the beloved of God becoming beloved to one another as they anticipate the return of Christ. And we have seen already, what we've seen in chapter 1 really leads us in to what we see in chapter 2. We saw in chapter 1 a picture of a beloved church. How a beloved church is changed by the gospel, connected in relationship, and committed to ministry. Last week, we saw evidence of election and those that they were very clear about. They said, we know this about you. You have experienced the new birth and regeneration, and you have exhibited a changed life and sanctification, and there are indicators following godly examples and receiving the word of God, becoming godly examples and giving the word of God, sharing your testimony, loving the church, turning from idols, serving the Lord waiting for Christ, living by faith. They were able to observe these things in their life. It really is summed up with this phrase, God changes those he chooses. And it was very obvious in the life of the Thessalonians that this is what had happened. And it leads to ministry that pleases God. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8, give three characteristics of ministry that please God. The ministry that pleases God is courageous, It is pure and it is selfless. Courageous, pure, and selfless. These were all marks of godly leaders in the church, in the home, in the community, and really to the ends of the earth. These are the things we need to please God, to live for God's glory, to live to others' good, and to be leaders worth following. That we would be kingdom of God seeking servants of God who are characterized by courage and purity and selflessness. The first thing we see in this passage is courage. You see it in verses 1 and 2, where Paul starts by saying this, You yourselves know, brethren, brothers and sisters, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. God did something. It was, it was, it was not for, for nothing. You, and you know it. Interestingly, Right before this, last week we saw this, where they were saying, we know this about you, and now they're saying, and you know this about us. We see things about you, you know things about us, you know that we are also chosen because of our ministry with you. We're no, we know you're chosen because of your changed lives, just as you know we are. And it's because of how we lived and served among you. This is like Paul telling the Corinthians, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in 
vain in the Lord. God is going to do something. God has promised to work. He's going to use the word to change lives. In verse 2, he says, We've already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi. And they knew that well. They came to Thessalonica from Philippi. And Acts chapter 16 explains the, the situation that was going on first in Philippi and then in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas, how did they get in prison where then that earthquake happened and the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? How did they get to that point? Well, they were, they were going and they were they're boldly giving the word out and there was a slave girl with an evil spirit and brought her owners much profit from fortune telling. And she's following after Paul and Silas and crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She was doing this for many days. And Paul is annoyed and says to the evil spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Her owners see that their, their prophets are now going to be gone. So they, here's what they do. They seize Paul and Silas. They drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. The crowd begins attacking them. The magistrates tear their garments off of them. They order them to be beaten with rods, and then they throw them in jail. All for preaching the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. They get to Thessalonica, and the Jews from Philippi are, are chasing them down, and there are many Jews that are jealous, and they get some wicked men, they form a mob, they attack the house of Jason where Paul was staying, they drag Jason before the city authorities, they're creating a huge disturbance in the city. And these are the kind of things that were going on. They were agitating and stirring up the crowds. So Paul says, we've already suffered and shamefully been treated in Philippi, and you know that we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The conflict followed them. And they had boldness to declare. To declare literally means to speak freely. Not to hide it. To be bold, to be courageous. In the midst of the opposition. And the conflict had arisen from their opponents. They were stirred up about the teaching of the word of God. And, and what, were they, what were the apostles doing? Rejoicing. So like it says in Acts 5, they rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer. It's like Paul told Timothy, I suffer and I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. I am convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Paul, Paul says, we, we need to be bold to proclaim the gospel. Pray for me, told the Ephesians, pray for me that I would declare it boldly as I ought. Amidst much opposition. Like the writer of Hebrews says, there are people who, for the gospel, suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and prison. They were they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. We were even told by the writer of Hebrews to consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. Don't lose your courage. Be courageous to preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. That's the kind of ministry that pleases God. The unchanging word of God gives courage. I have nothing to say to you today that's not from the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't need an update. It's not like, do you have 2.0, 3.0, 8.0? Do you have the update on the Word of God? I didn't have to worry that when I woke up this morning that the Word of God had been updated. 
It doesn't change. It's fixed. It's eternal. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's perfect. It binds your conscience. You must obey it. Everything in this world is changing right now. We're living on shifting sand, and God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. You know, we would fall apart. We would rot. We would unravel if not for God. He is the constant, the eternal, infinite God holding you and I together, holding everything in the universe together. That's why we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's why we to be bold and courageous to share the gospel, not to hide it. And you need to know, it, it, courageous truth-telling will bring conflict. Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And wherever life is, bugs are. Isn't it true? Wherever life exists, you've got ants and cockroaches and rats, many of them are just parasitic because they want to be where life is. John Wesley was once riding his horse along a road, and he was horrified at this thought. Oh no, it's been three days since I've been persecuted. Not a brick or an egg had been thrown at him in three days. And he says, I must have sinned and become backslidden. He drops from his horse, falls to his knees, cries out to God to show him where he had sinned. One of his opponents heard his prayer, picked up a stone, and threw it at him. He's like, praise God, I still have his presence. Now, maybe he was a little tightly wound on that. But his heart was tender, and he was bold about the word of God. If you would boldly give out the word of God, you must resolutely cling to the truth, like you're clinging to a life preserver. That you would tell yourself what is fully true, not the self-talk that you give yourself, not the negative self-talk that you give yourself that keeps you from being bold about the truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote on spiritual depression and what caused it and what cures it. And he said this, most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. You need to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. Say to your soul like the psalmist said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? What business have you to be disquieted? He says you must turn on yourself. Exhort yourself. Say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in a depressed, unhappy way. He says you must remind yourself of who God is and what he has done and what he has pledged himself to do. He says you must defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and defy the whole world and say with the psalmist in Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Courage. To taste and see that the Lord is good. When I was a kid, we'd be on a vacation or something, and we'd be camping or what have you, and my dad would, would see a bush with some berries or what have you, and he'd say, well, let's see if these are poisonous or not. Yeah, don't eat that. 
Well, that's how people figure out if something's poisonous or not. Courageous risk. You don't have to worry if the the word is going to harm. The word of God is perfect. It is sure. It is fixed. It is pure. It is active. It is living. God is going to use it to do good. You can be bold with it. Courageous. That's ministry that pleases God. Marked first with courage to to proclaim the gospel. Secondly, not just courage to proclaim the gospel, but pure motives. Pure motives to please God. That you're not doing things underhandedly for your reasons, but that you have pure motives to please God. And you'll see in verses 3 through 6 this defense of their ministry that, that just bleeds sincerity. Look at verse 3. He says, Our appeal, our, exert, our exhortation to help those who are being addressed, our appeal does not spring from error. He's saying we weren't deceived. We're not deceived. And it doesn't come from impurity of motive or any attempt to deceive. We're not deceived and we're not trying to deceive you. There's no guile. There's no trickery. We're not trying to pull one over on you. But verse 4, he says, Just as we have been approved literally to approve after examination or testing, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, like God entrusted them with the gospel. There's a stewardship. There's a responsibility. Paul even told Timothy, in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent aggressor against the church, an opponent, he tells Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And avoid irreverent babble and contradictions. So Paul says, we speak not to please man. It's talking about the kind of person who just goes along with everything to be accepted. He says, we speak not to please man. Paul had told the Galatians, if I'm still trying to please man, I'm not a servant of Christ. He told the Ephesians, don't be people pleasers. Be bondservants of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. He says, we we don't speak to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. That word test is to approve after testing. It was used of coins and people to see if something's genuine. God tested Paul and his friends, found them fit. Because God knows everything. He's omniscient. 1 Samuel says the Lord knows. Actions are weighed by him. He tests the heart and the mind. The psalmist said he knows the secrets of the heart. The writer of Hebrews says no creature is hidden from his sight. All are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We will account of ourselves to God. God tests our hearts. You'll notice that that word test is in the present continuous tense and it's at the end of the verse in greek it means that the examination is never final it's not like you take the test and pass it and you get to go on your merry way but god keeps testing your heart which can be somewhat frightening right the almighty god the one who is all-knowing is testing my heart paul says we speak as people approved we're we're trusted we seek to please god and by the way there's there's nothing more important to to ministry in the name of Christ than God-centeredness. That God is scrutinizing our hearts and his standards are high. It should cause us to tremble. That's the right response. 
But there's something else. There should be comfort in knowing that. That the omniscient God is testing your heart. There should be something freeing for you and I about this. To know that God who knows everything, God who is omniscient, knows and tests our hearts. Like, praise God that the omniscience of God makes dishonesty for us unthinkable as believers. The psalmist put it this way, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You discern my thoughts from afar. And it is freeing to know that the omniscient God tests our hearts. John Stott put it this way, God is a more knowledgeable, impartial, merciful judge than any human being, court, or committee. To be accountable to him is to be delivered from the tyranny of depraved human criticism. Paul goes on, verse 5. And we never came with words of flattery. Flattery is deception by slick eloquence. You want to gain influence over someone for selfish reasons. You, you want to win their heart over to exploit them. And he says, we never came with words of flattery, as you know. We didn't do this with you. Proverbs says, a flattering mouth works ruin. Romans 16 speaks of those who serve their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. And Paul says, we didn't come with words of flattery, nor did we come with a pretext for greed. Pretext is a cloak. It's a covering. It's a, it's a hiding. It's, it's where you have some definite plan that you hide, and it's for greed, where you have a selfish disregard for, for others, and, and you want to meet your own selfish desires for more and more. And Paul says, we weren't like that. We didn't hide that. No, God is witness. We didn't put a mask over to cover up greed, God knows. God knows we didn't pretend to serve you while we were trying to serve ourselves. We weren't trying to manipulate you. They were, they were, they were avoiding all these traps. It's like they, they weren't stepping on any of the landmines that many people fall into. He says in verse 6, we did not seek glory from people. The seeking there is continually trying to get people to pat you on the back. Because we didn't seek glory from people as a continual habit here, whether from you or others. And he even says, and we could have made demands. He's about to declare his mother-like love for them as the primary driver for serving them. But first he's reminding them of his pure motives. Pure motives. We're not, we weren't looking for praise. The flattery, the mask, the, the hunger for compliments, all the ways that people use other people that usually backfires, we weren't doing any of those. We weren't employing any of those underhanded tactics. He's basically saying we weren't like those who love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It was like he said to the, the Corinthians, we are not peddlers of God's word. But we are men of sincerity, commissioned by God. In God's sight, we speak. 
He told the Corinthians, we renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refused to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. We proclaim Christ as Lord and us as your servants for Christ's sake. He said to the Corinthians, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. They had pure motives. Some churches see people like products on a conveyor belt, existing solely to serve the purposes of leadership. Not this church. Not from day one at this church. We seek to be among you as servants doing life together. And I know it's countercultural to give truth and our lives. We're not following seven ways to draw the unchurched to your church. That's an actual article. It's garbage, by the way. We don't design church for unbelievers. We don't give customers what they want. We're not marketing the church. We're to lovingly engage with real people, whoever they are, wherever they come from, and give people what they need, which is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, perfect, conscience-binding, authoritative, eternal word of God and our lives lived before people that doesn't pull the rug out from under the word that we're giving. We're not using clever speech. We're not putting on a three-ring circus. We're a mission base to equip people to serve Christ and bring the word of God to bear in everything. The, the word that we obey, that the, the Spirit uses the word of God in the lives of people to change, to save, to sanctify. Every day I'm praying, God, save and sanctify as you will. By the way, if you are convicted by these verses, be appropriately convicted as I am every time I read them. I have to keep asking myself, is my motive to please God or am I just wanting people to like me? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've been reading a lot of Bonhoeffer recently, and here's what he said. He said, a touchy person will always become a flatterer and will come to despise and slander his brother. The humble person will stick to truth and love, will stick to the word, seek nothing for himself, and then he can help his brother with the word. This is what Paul was saying. We have hearts that were pure. We have... Pure motives, we're not perfect, but we have pure motives. There were healthy, supportive relationships that made the ministry of the word effective instead of draining. Because God sees. I mean, let's say that you're accused of something that you know you did not do. And they drag you into court. And there's a trial. And your defense comes in and produces all of these hidden cameras that were taking shots from all angles that absolutely prove your innocence. This is like God seeing all. He knows. He knows if, if you want to please God, if you want to do ministry that pleases God, you have to have courage to proclaim the gospel, but you have to have pure motives to please God, and God knows your motives. And then Paul moves to verses 7 and 8 in a third characteristic. 
selfless service to others. It's the heart of Christian ministry. They're my ministry life verses. I don't practice them very well often, but I think about them all the time. He says in verse 7, but we, and he gives this beautiful picture, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He points out the most tender of relationships, the closest of bonds, the most affectionate. Mother carries her child, cares for her child, watches every move, unflinchingly attentive to every need, cradles the body, makes sure the head is held at the right angle, puts the baby in the most comfortable position, monitoring every move, observing every breath, Anticipating every need, making plans, nap times and meal times and bedtimes and regulating life and changing diapers, all for the welfare of the child who is receiving yet seemingly unaware, but simply resting. unaware of the multitudes of attention being paid. And the mother simply loves. And there's no conflict. Just, just moment after moment of uninterrupted fellowship and, and joy, even as energy and resources are being expended. The mother gives her very life, this child that she's nursing, and doesn't question the outflow. It is, it's just natural, it's expected, it's provided, and she is exhausted and joyful. He uses an example that everyone at every time in every place would go, I got it. <laughs> I get that one. And it's interesting that even God speaks of himself this way. In Isaiah, as one whom his mother comforts, I will comfort you. You shall be comforted. God says this to his people. He says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those with young. Remember back in the mid-80s, I did... The first funeral I ever officiated was for a four-year-old child. And I preached that verse, Isaiah 40, verse 10. Tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those with young. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Galatians tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. It's a beautiful picture of gentle, selfless, nursing mother caring for her child. 
everyone and every time gets that picture. But we know we're not living in a time where that's the only picture we see. We are living in a time of extreme abject selfishness that has run amok and the hearts of man are depraved and wicked. Jonathan Edwards says, there is another who has made you and preserves you and provides for you and on whom you are dependent. He has made you for himself and for the good of your fellow creatures and not only for yourself. But we are living in a time, as in every time since the fall until Christ returns, when selfishness often rules the day. Why is is it so that there is a depraved fixation on personal autonomy? Why, why is abortion, why is the LGBTQ agenda so despicable? It's because their adherents delight to destroy and deface the image of God. Making graphic graffiti of image bearers. And Almighty God is while they will not prevail because he sovereignly sees and judges all. We mar the beautiful picture. And if we would serve in the name of Christ, we must embody the beautiful picture of a mother tenderly caring for her own child. And with that, Paul moves to a sweet summary statement, verse 8. And he says this, And so, being affectionately desirous, now that's a mouthful, affectionately desirous, what does that mean? It means we're longing for you. It was even used on on gravestones, headstones in those days of of parents yearning for a dead child, longing He says, we we were affectionately desirous of you. We are this way about you. So we were ready to share. We were ready to share. We were were well pleased to do it. We were gladly determined to do it. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives, our very souls, our very selves, who we are. Because you had become very dear. To us. Very dear. It's from the word agape. Very dear means beloved. You become beloved to us. We, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel but our own lives because you had become so dearly beloved to us. You know, the old school way of saying dearly beloved needs to come back. Dearly beloved. We're ready to share literally everything with you. Those of us that struggle so much with selfishness find this one very counterintuitive. 
Back in the late 80s, I was on a missions trip in Irian Jaya, Indonesia. And I was, at one of, I was one of the guests of honor at a big pig feast. And they roasted this big pig and chopped it up into big pieces. And, and they, they put in front of me like half of a wild boar. <laughs> and, I, and I turned to my missionary friend and I'm like, I'm not sure I can eat all of this. He's like, no, 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 no. They shared this with you so that you would share it with them. You're now supposed to distribute this to everyone around. And it's interesting when they say we were ready to share. What that means is not just here, this is for you, but we're going to share in such a way that we both are blessed, we both are benefited, we both enter into the sharing. And Paul and his friends are saying, far from using you to minister to us, we gave ourselves to minister to you. So if you're the person who are always saying what other people aren't doing for you, you miss this point. The self-centered orbits revolve around themselves, right? But we need to cultivate the kind of ministry that is displaying the gentleness and the love and the self-sacrifice of a nursing mom. I read verse 8, verse 7 and 8, and I'm like, yes, 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 but there's some limits. <laughs> you know, we, we, we want to we put our limits on, like only, anything but that, Lord, you know, and we all have whatever it is. We, we don't want to do that. But selfless service. My parents were reminding me the other day, we were talking on the phone, and they reminded me that one time one of their friends called them and said, hey, we saw your son in San Diego this weekend. And he was at the back of a yellow church bus with some people making like 150 sandwiches for starving kids. Well, what, what, what it was was that it was a, it was a day camp trip uh, that we were on, and, and we were on about a 100-degree day in the back of uh, standing behind this big yellow school, uh, church bus making 150 sandwiches for kids. And I thought, well, that could be a good example of selflessness. But top of selfless list is motherhood. Like, like thank you moms for, for, for being the best example. One of the most courageous, sincere, unselfish callings in the universe and a, that everyone in every time and place would get. Like, we get this example. Got it. That's a picture. But what it makes us ask is, do I share my life with people in this church, in, in my local church? If you're, if you're not a part of grace, then your local church, like that, would that characterize you? And I, and I want to think with, with you now about what does it mean? More, what does it look like to engage in selfless service right now? Not like in general, like, oh yeah, this is a generality, but what does selfless service look like in, in this moment? I'm going to give you six things, just applicational things on these two verses, on seven and eight. 
The first is this. Selfless service looks like ex expressing genuine concern for people. In verse 7, it says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. To the Philippians, Paul was saying, Look, I don't have anyone else that will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The idea behind it is that God's beloved become beloved to one another such that you love your family in Christ. And this, this present moment that we have been struggling through and navigating has tested the bonds of Christian love to the breaking point. And Christian love is from Christ. It doesn't originate in us. But you and I need to actively love the church, the one we belong to, like strengthen the ties that bind, and not in, in legalistic ways that dictate what that love looks like, and not in licentious ways that barely cares or thinks about it, but expressing genuine concern. Dearly beloved, and, and secondly, showing godly affection. Verse 8, he says, being affectionately desirous of you, longing for you. This is a love that goes deeper than your opinions about social issues. In Philippians 1, 8, he says, God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus gave me the affection for you, and his love is deep. Like, like God's word and Christ's love compels you to love and to think what's best for others and to do whatever you can to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ and reach the nations for the gospel. And if you can't love your, neighbor, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church, you cannot reach the nations with the gospel. Showing godly affection. And third, sacrificing for others. He says, we were ready to share with you. We were ready to do it. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For our brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to lay down our lives for them. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean insisting on pushing your legalistic or licentious choices on other people. Like, own your own decisions, but do not push them on other people. And, and stop all your finger-pointing and accusations. This is happening in every church right now, and it's happening in this church. God sees the heart. If you're innocent, humbly rejoice. If you're guilty, humbly repent. Sacrifice for others. And equip for ministry. Maturity. Equip for Maturity. You know what he says? He says, we're not only going to give you our lives, but the gospel of God. That's what's going to mature people. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We're warning them from the word of God. We're teaching them the word of God with wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The season we're living in has absolutely shown us how immature and unhealthy we are. Exposed pre-existing conditions and forces us once again to, to depend 100% on God Almighty and not on our own understanding. That we would get it straight that God's decrees are binding 
and must be obeyed without question, and man's decisions must be weighed and applied with wisdom, equipped for maturity with the word of God, not your opinions. And another, it means spending without limit. You notice he says, but our own selves, our own souls. This is like Paul telling the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What a picture. I will spend and be spent. There is no limit. I will spend without limit. I will show every consideration for everyone. I will always seek to do what is good and right and build up my loved ones. I will spend willingly and be spent for the souls of others. Like a servant washing feet. I have a picture in my office of a servant washing feet. Most humble activity. Spending without limit. And one more. Giving mutual encouragement. Giving mutual encouragement. He says, because you become very dear to us. You have become very dear. How does that make you feel? If I say to you, you're, you're very dear to me. You're beloved to me. You're very dear to me. This is like Paul told the Romans. I long to see you and impart some spiritual gift to you to strengthen you, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. If you know me at all very well, you know I'm probably the biggest germaphobe in the church. And in this moment we're living in, if you're going to give mutual encouragement, then beware of germs and be very careful. We're living in the time of germs that everyone's aware of, yes. But we've also been pushed to the brink of fear-mongering on one extreme and recklessness on another extreme. Fear-mongering and recklessness. Be wise, trust God, who holds everything together by the word of his power. Like, apply the truth and love to your words about masks and vaccines and gatherings and other issues you're interested in or worked up about. Like, let everybody live their life and, and use common sense, but don't judge everyone. I want our hearts to reflect this kind of attitude where we would say it's only by God's grace that I am saved and I am the worst of sinners and I am thankful for Christ's superabundant mercy and it makes me want to engage in ministry that pleases him that I would be courageous to preach the gospel that I would be pure in my motives to please God and that I would engage in selfless service to others. Bonhoeffer also said this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. Like if you have this idea of how it has to be and what it must look like and what people should do, you're going to destroy community. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But then Bonhoeffer said this, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Just love this church and the people in it right now and, and treat those who are very dear very well. That your love for Christ and his dearly beloved church would grow so deep that this this local church would become so, so dear to you, so, so beloved to you, that you would increasingly delight in giving the gospel and your life. 
May we become that beloved because that ministry pleases God. Lord, you search us, you know us. Lord, I pray that you would see if there be any hurtful way in me, in us, that you would let the words of our hearts and the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts and the thoughts of our hearts and let our ministry be pleasing in your sight with courage, with sincerity, with, with selflessness. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen.